Hi there, I'm Rory O'Connor, Professor of Health Psychology and a Mental Health Researcher at the University of Glasgow. And I'm Craig, a filmmaker and content creator at MQ Mental Health Research. And welcome to MQ Open Mind, a podcast that brings together lived experience with scientific research to help us to better understand mental health problems. And we hope to do so in a way that is accessible to all. This week we have Affili and LGBTQ plus advocate Amazon Letty and assistant professor of clinical psychology at Stony Brook University, Dr. Jessica Slider. In this episode, we spoke about supporting the mental health of the LGBTQ plus community, the importance of representation, and the impact of meaningful moments on your mental health. So welcome to the latest MQ Open Mind podcast. Craig and I are delighted. We've got a, effectively a double episode. We've got two amazing people to speak to us today. And I have a bit of a, a bit of a hoarse voice. So my voice just cracked there now, but um, we'll, we'll con- continue. We've got Amazon um, Letty as the first. And then the second person we've got, we've got Jessica Slider. So we're really, really delighted to have both of you today. So maybe for the benefit of of our guests or our people listening, can you tell us a bit about who you are? So Amazon, if I start with you, do you want to say a bit about your role and the work that you've been doing over, over recent years? I've been on your website and it's incredible, but maybe to share that more broadly with, with our sure. listeners. Sure. I'm a global LGBTQ advocate, athlete, keynote speaker, published author, and the first Asian LGBTQ athlete in the world to simultaneously hold multiple sports ambassador roles. And I do a lot of work around how we can champion equality through the lens of sports. And I work with Fortune 500 companies, um, governments all around the world, the White House and different sports organizations. Fantastic, fantastic. And Jessica, the same for you. Tell us a bit about your background, that'd be great. Sure. So I am trained as a clinical psychologist and currently I'm an assistant professor of clinical psychology at Stony Brook University in New York, where I direct the lab for scalable mental health. And our mission is to fill in the gaps that are, you know, have long been unfillable in mental health care ecosystems and with a particular focus on young people who haven't historically had access to services. LGBTQ young people are unfortunately persistently a big part of that category of youth without and with limited access to resources. So we actually build, develop, evaluate, and disseminate single session and brief interventions, uh, often digital and often lay provider delivered um, to try to reduce the burden of mental illness. Um, To date, our programs have reached 14,000 young people um, across the US and abroad. Um, writing books, published some books on uh, translating our interventions into accessible resources. Um, And we maintain an open access website where all of our interventions can be freely used by anybody anonymously. Fantastic. Three incredibly busy people um, and incredibly productive. So maybe I would just stick with you for a second, Jessica. It'd be great maybe tell us a bit about maybe your interests, how your interest in mental health sort of developed. um, Sure. Yeah, well, there, 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 are, there are two versions of this story. One is personal and one is less personal, um, as is often the case, I think, for folks who go into this line of work. Um, the more personal one is that when I was a teenager, the issue of limited access to care uh, in moments of need was very, very real to me and something that I experienced in my own life. Um, and, you know, wanting to reach out for help, but being unable to or un- uncomfortable asking adults in my life or family members uh, put me in a really tough spot. And ultimately, treatment was something that I was able to access, but it took too much and too long mm-hmm. um, with too many obstacles in the way. Uh, later on, um, I actually taught uh, math to middle school students before I went into clinical psychology. And I saw this pattern playing out over and over again in the students that I was teaching. Algebra wasn't helping them with the problems that were facing them in their real lives, which were family stress, community violence, um, hopelessness, depression, and anxiety. Mm -hmm. And when I would refer them to treatment, they couldn't afford it. They 
uh, didn't know where to look. They couldn't find providers without six month waiting lists. Um, So I really was convinced by both my own experiences and my experiences as a teacher, you know, something has to change about this system. And I've been trying to figure out ways to help make that happen since, since then over the past 10 plus years. Yeah, and the sad reality, I think, is I don't know if, the, the, well, certainly in the United Kingdom, the waiting list problem, especially for teens, for getting access to child and adolescent mental health services, is still such a huge issue. So it's so great to hear more in a second about the scalable interventions work that, that you do. That'd be fantastic. So Amazon, back over to you then. So what's your, in terms of your journey, because again, reading on your, your website, it's a really fascinating story. Sure. I mean, I think like so many of us, I've had my challenges with mental health all the way from childhood in terms of my traumatic upbringing, being bullied constantly um, as a kid because I look very different from everyone else. Mm -hmm. Um, Difficulties with my sexuality, not having a word for how I felt, not having any access to any kind of help or resources and just a lack of understanding around mental health. Um, and I think, you know, also being an athlete as, as well, the challenges of competing and the difficulties with mental health. We don't necessarily think that athletes suffer from mental health, but it's, you know, it's now coming out with athletes like Naomi Osaka pulling out of major mm-hmm. tennis tournaments and talking about their struggle with um, mental health. Yeah, and so so I read then that very early on in life you got involved in, in bodybuilding. And was that so was, was it age six that I read? Yes, I started sports at a very young age. And I think for me that was just finding a sense of community and also a way for to, to self-help my mm. own well-being, which I look now, you know, sport has played such a major role in my own well-being and my own mental health. It's been very much a survival mechanism um, for me over the years. Yeah, and, and so then in terms of the sort of more public-facing work, so when did that start in sort of your advocacy role and sort of public speaking and, and so on? When did that all take off? I actually, you know, never had envisioned a role in activism mm-hmm. um, at all. And it was really through my own experiences of the challenges with my mental health, with sexuality, with the bullying and racism that I suffered that, you know, over a period of time, I realized the power of sharing my story and the platform that I started to create through sports and the impact that I could create. And also now looking back and seeing how, you know, LGBTQ kids still struggle so much with their mental health, ethnic kids do, people in sports. And, you know, there's so much power in sharing our story and normalizing mental health. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I mean, over the last, five or ten years in particular, I think there's been huge, um, certainly in our part of, well, our, our side of the pond, there's been so much more advocacy, really, that the media work around um, and role models talking about mental health, I think, has been so, so important. Um, and I think it's helped, I suppose, advocates and, and people obviously struggling themselves, but also I think maybe Jessica bringing you in there in terms, I think, that higher profile of mental health has really helped mental health scientists like yourself. So can you maybe tell us about how you you got to the sort of uh, the lab for scalable mental health and how that came about? I know you trained in Harvard, I think, and then you know at Stony Brook. Do you want to tell us a bit about that? Absolutely. So I entered graduate school convinced that I would study school and community-based interventions, taking things out of the clinic and into the world in order to meet kids where they actually are. Mm-hmm. Uh, seems like an excellent idea, still seems like a very good idea in many ways. I was very quickly uh, socialized to the fact to how difficult it is to implement and sustain mm-hmm. those kinds of supports in real world settings. 
Um, I kept seeing kids not come back after they'd be seen once um, or, you know, grant funded um, efforts to disseminate school based resources that would disintegrate when the funding dried up. Um, and they really didn't seem to be a sustainable and scalable solution as I had envisioned them to be. Meanwhile, when I was training at Harvard University to also become a therapist, I would notice particularly low income um, and minoritized clients wouldn't come back after a session or two because of financial barriers, travel, logistics, all of these things that would get in the way. Mm -hmm. And I started to wonder, what if, well, is there anything we can do such that if they only come once, we can still do yeah. something to help them? And I got really stuck on this idea of knowing that, and in fact, this is true, the modal number of psychotherapy sessions that people end up attending globally is one for a variety of these barriers reasons. What can we do in one session? Mm -hmm. So I started and I conducted a meta-analysis. So I aggregated all the studies that have been done to date um, on single session interventions for mental health. As it turned out, I was not the first person to have this idea. There were 50 <laughs> randomized controlled trials already in 2016 on the topic. And they had a positive effect. They had effects that were actually comparable to the effects of 16 session interventions. And was that for, was um, that for young people? Or across for young the people, for, young, for people. young people, yes, which was, you know, very exciting for my graduate advisor and me to see and also a little bit alarming because what are we doing if we can do something similar in one session, but I started the lab for scale mental health when I began my faculty position, precisely because I want to know what is possible within brief broadly scalable interventions. So we tried to build them, we test them, we iterate them, we co-design them with teens, we embed them in digital platforms, we train lay providers to deliver them, and we try to figure out how and for whom they work best so that mm -hmm. they can be embedded into the mental health care ecosystem on a broad scale. Uh, and it's very exciting to be in this area of work because I think we're able to fill gaps that were have long been viewed as unfillable. Um, and we've also experimented quite a bit with going directly to youth and waiving requirements for parent permission for adolescents to take part in these low intensity and brief interventions. Um, and and that's, you get that through IRBs in terms of ethics committees. Do you get that, that could be a whole other podcast episode, but yes, <laughs> uh, we do um, because we make the ethical case that most up to 80% of kids with mental health needs access nothing. Mm -hmm. So what is the ethical case for withholding this one session, low intensity, yeah. very low risk intervention that has actual empirical potential to help them. There is no ethical case for doing that. Um, and so that's how we've been able to argue. And for LGBTQ youth in particular, um, if we have that as an entry criterion for a study, we can't out them to their parents yeah, in order yeah, to have them yeah. participate in the study. That would be extremely harmful. <laughs> so allowing a route for these kids who can't reach out for help to access something directly in moments of need mm -hmm. is our entire goal and very important to us and something yeah. we're really excited about. Well, thank God. And that it really is moving the field forward, I think, really trying to think of innovative ways, not only to reach the young people, but also, I mean, that thing about ethics requirements for those of, who are listening who are not researchers, I mean, it can be a huge barrier, especially in fields like where you've got young people who are suicidal. That's another barrier because then the acutely suicidal people are too often excluded from studies for ethical reasons. So it's great that we're, as a field, as mental health science, we're, we're really trying to overcome that. So maybe we'll, we'll come back to that in, in, a, in a second in terms of you're thinking about research priorities and what we should be doing next and maybe what your key, what you've learned in, in, in the recent years. Amazon, back to you for a second. And so when you think over, reflecting over your um, struggles early on with the bullying and, and then did you say uh, struggles with your, your sexuality as well, where, so what, what, what worked or what, or were there things that you encountered which were useful or, and or what would you hope to see in place now for young people going through what you went through? You know, the only resource that I had then was sports. There, there was just, and, and, you know, and I even think now about mental health because it's not something that you can see. You know, there are so many times that people say, well, you can just snap out of it. You know, there are some days, we, and I think, you know, the pandemic has obviously exasperated people's mental health to the point where, you know, there are days where, 
even sending an email just takes too much effort and people can't understand why you can't just do the littlest things, but your brain is working on such a slow speed that getting up was like the best thing that you did (laughs) in in, in that day. You know, I think we have need to have so much more information that's accessible to youth, um, obviously in different languages. Um, We need to share many more stories. We need to continually to normalize um, mental health as, as well. Um, you know, as I said, you know, all I had was sport. I didn't yeah. have anything else. I didn't have a support network that I could go to where people would understand how I felt mm-hmm. inside is, was, was, was different. I mean, even now when I talk to people about mental health, I still have people who say, well, it's just a state of mind. You just need to snap out of it. Yeah, but I mean, part of me is obviously saddened by that, but because it is, we, we, I think we have made some progress in challenging the stigma, but what you're clearly highlighting is we've, I mean, we're just at the start of this journey. It really is only the beginning that, that these stereotypes, like the snap out of it stereotype or the people with, oh, people who have mental health problems have their head in their hands idea. I mean, it's just not true at all. But, but Amazon, do you think you've seen progress, though, in like so that you've obviously given that example, some people still say those things to you or you hear them. But do you do you on the ground think things are getting better, though, or the people you're speaking to, like, are they listening? So obviously, I also see that you um in the White House, you've had obviously your contacts within the White House. So they're listening, or are they listening? You know, I always kind of feel, you know, we take two steps forward and then we also take three steps back. And there are also cultural issues as well. When I think of the Asian community, yeah. you know, we don't talk about social issues. You know, mental health doesn't exist. It's like, you know, and don't ask, don't tell mm-hmm. kind of policy around um, mental health. I think the pandemic has really heightened and pushed mental health to the forefront because people have realized and it's become so public globally how so many people have struggled with their mental health through the pandemic it wasn't just a few people from you know different parts of the community the pand and I think that's helped normalize it but it also has shown the cracks in the system of Mm -hmm. a lack of support from the, the government, a lack of support on the ground level, a lack of support within different communities as, yeah. as well. Yeah, I suppose that speaks to Jessica thinking then on the research sort of end of things. So um, have you noticed an, a marked change in, in trying to get funding from NIMH, National Institute of Mental Health? Or, I mean, have you seen that change in your career thus far? in the last say 10 or so years, like as youth mental health and that intersectionality we would often talk about, obviously, sexuality, any other inequalities, ethnicity. So is that really moving forward? Certainly in the UK it has, and I have some sense it's moving forward as well, of course, in the United States, but do you want to speak a bit to that? Sure, so I think in the, During the pandemic, over the course of the past two, three years, there has been heightened awareness and understanding of the importance of the health disparities and the mental health disparities Mm -hmm. and the treatment access disparities that have persisted for decades that are just now becoming fully appreciated by funding bodies. I think that the focus then of a lot of agencies like NIH, National Institute of Mental Health over here, um, are requiring more investigators to center those issues and explain how they're planning to address those issues Mm -hmm. um, in the research that they're planning. At the same time, there's also a very big push in, in the United States, not necessarily on treatment and implementation research, but on neuroscience research that has less immediate applications for addressing these disparities. Um, So as a treatment researcher, it continues to be a challenge. Um, (laughs) And at the same time, I'm hopeful. um, I mean, even in the past five years, um, I've seen the 
openness to even asking adolescents about their gender identity and sexual orientation open up enormously. That mm-hmm. is something that hasn't, that wasn't done very frequently, yeah. if at all, that ethics boards would actually say, that's not something that you want to ask about, that that's not something parents will be okay with you asking about. Mm-hmm. Um, so even the openness to the questions, the understanding that the questions are important and those disparities matter, uh, is exciting to see the funding agencies taking seriously. Yeah, because I remember in a study, actually, we did a few years ago, and it wasn't the ethics committee had a problem. It was the head teachers yes. in, in schools. And so we were at, so they were okay for us to ask questions about child abuse and childhood yep. trauma. But the minute we asked any questions about gender or sexual identity, it, it was no. Now, this is from schools which were, um, were from Catholic schools. And, but I, I mean, I still am baffled. I was... I was baffled at the time. It was just this bizarre way of viewing the world that it's okay to ask. So asking about traumatic things in your past is okay, but not this other thing. So it's really, yeah, it's interesting. Exactly. But again, I think I think we have, I don't think that way. Oh, I would like to think that wouldn't happen today now, though. Well, it, it does. <laughs> it most definitely does, especially in the context of U.S. politics right now um, and the anti-trans and anti-LGBTQ laws that are being proposed and passed all over the country. Mm-hmm. Um, we actually had, we've had some collaborations with city government to implement and disseminate our digital single session interventions through schools, um, through sort of local government grants. And in one area that we were partnering with, which was a relatively conservative area, we weren't allowed to disseminate our resources if we asked in an anonymous survey about sexual orientation and gender identity. Um, even though they were, we were just trying to assess, do these supports work mm. okay for everybody equally? <laughs> we were just trying to make sure that there were no disparities that we needed to address. But they wouldn't let us ask the questions. And if we did, then the resources would be accessible to anybody in the school. That's just um, heartbreaking. So it's really, it's unbelievable. I well, know. It's not unbelievable. So it's, that's right. Yeah. I mean, um, but it's very much still happening. Um, yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, well, I think I, I can only speak in the U, from the UK's point of view. That wouldn't, I don't think that would happen in the UK now. Um, but we haven't, um, we haven't had the, whatever, what the changes in laws that obviously you're having in different states in, right. in, in the US. Um, so maybe kind of just before we'll come back to the research in a second, but one of the things we're hoping to cover, Craig and I, was how you both deal with your own mental health, right? And so, um, so back to yourself for a second. You talk, we touched obviously when you were younger and the bodybuilding and so on. But what, what do you do now to look after your mental health or help with your mental health? I have a dog now. <laughs> and well, the dog who may make an appearance. <laughs> She's actually not falling asleep. It has been, I think, of the pandemic pre-dog and kind of because I got my dog halfway through the pandemic she was an abandoned dog and it's done wonders for my mental health I can I can see the difference it's been so dramatic the difference um, I think you know we can't underestimate mm-hmm. animal therapy and what that does for our mental health and I think now I'm, you know, I'm so conscious in terms of taking more time off technology because I think we're consuming so much news. And I think during the pandemic, all we did, all we've been doing is just sitting in front of mm-hmm. a screen and it's just not healthy, the amount of news and social media and technology we're consuming. Mm-hmm. So I'm being very con- conscious of that. But the dog has been fantastic because I spend so much time now outdoors in nature which has done wonders for my mental health and I think as well I'm so much more in tuned and aware of my mental health in terms of I can I can see the signs when I start to slip and what I need to do in that process to pull myself out before it gets too far yeah Um, yeah no because actually one of the studies we've been doing over COVID is monitoring people's mental health in the UK and we've asked people then also what they're doing and well you you won't be surprised to know that lots of people have said um dogs and um getting dogs or walking their dog and and although we 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 haven't got enough to look at whether that's statistically protective but it certainly seems from the quality data that that I mean that's really positive and and I think you're right that that I think these things during the pandemic I think Jessica mentioned earlier about the 
the exacerbation of inexisting inequalities in the, the pandemic has shown a, a, a torch on or shown a light on. But I think hopefully also one of the things we can do is learn what's working and door walking or whatever it might be, getting out with nature and having part of a routine is really helpful. So Jessica, what about yourself? What do you, what works for or you find helpful? So two things. One, dogs work. <laughs> um, there, and there's evidence to that. There's actually a good body of literature. Um, a lot of it's been done recently by a researcher named Molly Crossman, who's at McLean Hospital now. Um, they actually do have a sustained impact on well-being. And my dog has been, for me, uh, a you know, single case study design of that. Um, and it's, it's been wonderful. It, you know, animals are also a very underrated and understudied and highly scalable mental health intervention. So I'm, of course, a fan um, as a fan of such interventions in general. <laughs> I'm also a big believer um, in the fact that change can happen, even small changes that matter can happen in short periods of time from meaningful moments that we can construct for ourselves uh, from day to day. So uh, mental health problems are often chronic. Um, those that I've experienced, I would certainly characterize them that way. They ebb and flow over time and are exacerbated by context and circumstances. Um, and finding ways and opportunities to embed moments that build a sense of security, agency, self-efficacy, connection, even a little bit into every day, uh, that, that has been a habit that's been pretty game-changing for me. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm actually writing a book right now um, on how meaningful moments can trans, you know, kind of transform your mental health. And I've been interviewing lots of folks who've struggled with mental illness about specific moments that mattered for them in their recovery journeys. Um, and those specific and I, moments can be anything, I assume, those meaningful yeah, moments. Yeah, absolutely. They don't have to be in the context of formal treatment. They're things you can construct or seek out or try to create for yourself in your day-to-day -day life. Um, and they, you know, I'm writing the book now, so more soon, but uh, <laughs> they do tend to center around um, really interesting themes of just feeling connected to others, feeling understood, yeah. um, feeling seen, and feeling like maybe change is more possible than I thought it was. Yeah, no, I think it's, we'll look for, when's the book, when's, when's your manuscript delivery date? Uh, a year from last month. So it's relatively new, it's ongoing, um, but I'm excited for it. So when we'll see this book in whatever, 18 months then or something like that? Yeah, probably? something like that, yeah, something no. like that. I know, Jessica, you've done some research on gender identities. If you wanted to talk a little bit more about that. Absolutely. So there are, you know, as uh, a lot of folks in our field know, there are longstanding disparities in mental health and well-being um, across gender majority, cisgender and trans and non-binary young people. Um, the Trevor Project is a fantastic nonprofit organization doing really impactful and important survey-based research to quantify the nature and severity of those disparities, showing that a majority of young people identifying as a gender minority, um, and in many cases, a sexual minority or both, um, are experiencing suicidality at far higher rates uh, than um, their cisgender and heterosexual peers. And this is really shining a light on the need to understand, well, if there are these disparities, then do they translate to access to care? And do they translate to how well our interventions work for people with different backgrounds and different identities and different needs potentially? Um, and in fact, there is some evidence emerging that our treatments may not work as well for kids that they weren't designed for, that they weren't tested on originally, that are facing minority stress and all of these external real problems um, and challenges in their lives that aren't addressable by changing how you think, <laughs> mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Um, aren't addressable by just seeing it in a different light or you know, managing your emotions better. Like, no, the stress has actually ex exists in the world and how do you deal with that? So in our work, we try to see one, um, are single session digital interventions that don't require parent permission a, a reasonable way to reach more young people who have traditionally not access care because they can't ask their parents for help because they're not out. Um, and by the same token, um, do our interventions work the same or as well uh, for these kids as, as they do for heterosexual cisgender kids, uh, which has been the majority of who's been involved in research to date on youth mental health. 
Um, fortunately, we found that our interventions do work equally well um, for uh, youth, regardless of sexual identity or gender orientation. Um, and in our most recent study in a sample of about 2,500 adolescents from all 50 US states, 80% um, of our sample identified as a sexual or gender minority. Um, and we found no differences on any of the effects on depression across three months for our brief interventions uh, as a virtue of you know, identity. However, we also, um, through a collaboration and, and generous support from the Upswing Foundation for Adolescent Mental Health and in collaboration with Professor Catherine Fox at University of Denver, we've actually been able to partner with LGBTQ young people with lived experience of mental illness and ask them, what do you think of these brief interventions and what are they missing? that would better meet your needs. That actually led us to develop a new single session intervention teaching about what minority stress is. The fact that there are very real realities and stigmas and discrimination experiences in the world that disproportionately impact people with minoritized identities and people who are gender minorities or sexual minorities or any other intersection of minoritized identities. And that is really hard. Here are stories and narratives uh, from others who've been coping with this. And here's a way to create your own network of support um, to deal with this reality that is genuinely really hard. Um, so this, this module, just educating about what minority stress is, gives people a language to talk about the um, discrimination that they experience and what it does to mental health over time and giving them an, a, a path for feeling like they can do something about that. Um, that was something that the, the young people we worked with really wanted and thought was important and missing from most mental health treatments. So we just evaluated that in a randomized trial online with 500 LGBTQ youth. Um, we're finding it helps promote um, uh, identity pride and reduces internalized stigma related to sexual and gender minority identities. Um, and we're really excited to continue rolling it out um, and seeing what it can help with for this population. It's amazing. Yeah, um, and has that, has that been published, Jessica? No, not yet. Um, <laughs> we just finished the final follow-up for that trial. Um, the larger trial with 2,500 kids, that has been published. Mm. Um, but the, the minority stress is... Uh, we're excited to get it out in the next couple of months. Yeah, well, that, no, that's not it really I mean, that, that sounds yeah. like an amazing work indeed. And is that the project with Catherine Fox? Is, is, yes. Yeah, yes. No, Catherine, Catherine's brilliant. So she is. And, yes, she is. <laughs> um, but no, so but what I really highlights is a really important point, which is not only what your work's doing is not only if you got really important outcomes, but if I understood it correctly, you're looking at the mechanisms as well. Like that, that's right. If we can target internalized stigma or we can target whatever it is going on for the individual, if we can't change the structural stuff, and we can, we should be trying to do that. And I think, but no, I really look forward to seeing that in print. That's that's fantastic. Yeah. Um, can I just go back to Amazon for a second? So um, we've been talking, or uh, Jessica, well, you're we're talking about your your book, your writing. Amazon, you've written a book, a, a couple of books anyway, from what I can see. Any plans for any new books from you? <clears throat> Before I answer that question, I wanted to go back with what Jessica said, because for me, when I think back as a child and growing up, that's what I had minority stress, but it was compounding minority stress with my sexuality and mm -hmm. being Asian as well. And that lack of understanding of minority stress, but on the compounding of minority stress and what it has does to your mental health. And also these, you know, meaningful moments that are linked to mental health because through the pandemic we lost all these meaningful moments and I think you know when we look at the LGBTQ community now particularly youth you know they didn't have the anti-trans sports bills that they had now mm -hmm. a, a number of years ago so you know it's a meaningful moment through sport that has been suddenly lost but then when you think it's not just lost for a moment if it's a state ban and this kid is six, we're talking until they finish, get to college level of 18, 20, 21, to the point where they can afford to move to another state. So it's a lifetime of this wonderful, meaningful moment that they've lost and the compounding of what that does over so many years to their mental health. And then, you know, trying to 
gain back that meaningful moment as an adult, but that trauma as well that you've accumulated all those years. Mm -hmm. I'm not, I think that's a really a point really well made, but just as it sounds to struck me that on the back of it though, so see when legislation is introduced in the different states, now do, does the legislator have to conduct what's known as an, well, an inequality impact assessment? So we do in the UK, any law in the UK, yeah, the government has to say, will this impact adversely on any population? So is that, because that clearly no. can't be done. <laughs> because That's how on earth can you get these laws passed Because when there's all the evidence out there? So they don't have to do that to your knowledge. I wish they did. They do not. I mean, and and that's such a powerful story. Amazon, you like that's you've just illustrated really well. Like that, not these are not effects which will be lasting one year or two years, but for large chunks of people's lives. Yeah. Yes, and you think the resources and the support that then that that child will need over their entire life. Oh. And many of the legislators in these states have come out stating we don't know of any trans youth competing or playing sport, but we're doing it just in case. I mean, in Kentucky, they do, they passed the bill for one child. It's incredible, isn't it? It really is. I keep saying incredible, and, and I've said previously, it's not, it's just, sadly, it's just a reality now. Um, but what, what can be done though? What, like, so people like you speaking out, both of you speaking out and, and making your case heard, but if it's not a blue state, I assume that's the issue, and that, so what, what, I suppose, is it education? Like There's a tremendous amount of misinformation about being trans in sport. And I think as well, in terms of the mental health aspect, you know, we, we need research on this, um, you know, tied to the anti-trans sports bill of mm -hmm. the effect on the child's mental health over, you know, a long period of time. It's, it's literally a lifetime mm -hmm. of, you know, and you know, health providers in these states have already stated, you know, they've seen an uptick in kids going into suicide watch into the hospital. So it's it started immediately as the first anti-trans sports bill mm -hmm. fell. And we're talking 17 states. And it's not just about trans sports bill. It's about, you know, healthcare being made a felon, felony, bathroom bills. I mean, it's a total erasure of a one, you know, of a community and that effect on that child who's six yeah. who's still coming to terms with their gender identity but also coming to terms that they're living in a state that hates them and then in terms that they can't play sport they can't go healthcare, they can't go to the bathroom it's like a, one compound on top of an, another in terms of you know the mental health mm -hmm. yeah no it's it is horrendous and i think that's the only word to describe it um, and and i suppose all we can do in every forum is shout as loud as possible with the evidence as you as you said already it's it's about getting we have that we have the evidence we need to get it out there to challenge that that misinformation as much as we can so maybe maybe move the discussion on a bit and um so maybe jessica back to you on the so maybe it might be related to what we've just been talking about is so what do you when you think about the future of maybe your research field or the broader mental health science field like what's what's your image of that moving forward i think we're going to have to rethink what mental health interventions can look like where they can exist who can deliver them pretty much everything about our mental health system which has historically served people who are they have many advantages and privileges to be mm -hmm. able to access the treatment that they do um, in, in the US, there are multiple layers of problems uh, from insurance policy down to, you know, um, minority stress down to provider shortages um, that compound each other to, to make the current system untenable. Um, but Alan Kasdan is a researcher who was at Yale, who's recently retired, but he's been writing a very similar paper like every five years for 20 years. Um, I on read those the papers. Need. They're great. They're wonderful every time, but it shows that every five years it's like, hey, we need to reboot the entire mental health care system because large portions of people never get access to anything. And many people who do get access don't access anything based in evidence. Mm -hmm. um, 
And that is going to continue as long as we uh, default to this uh, professional delivered once weekly therapy model of that's what treatment can look like. Mm -hmm. Um, so I'm really hoping that the work that our lab is doing on single session and digital interventions that are youth guided, that empower youth to make their own decisions about what supports they want and need in the moment, um, from the wonderful lay provider, um, and paraprofessional work being done by a lot of global mental health researchers. I'm really hopeful that we can think bigger than the systems that are already in place and begin to really implement and integrate the newer solutions that we know are gonna be necessary to getting everybody access to support with uh, the infrastructure that is already there. Um, and I'm hopeful that's where treatment and implementation science is going to go in our field. So just, um, that's just a yeah. minor ask, really. Just <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, just, you know, you know, redo the whole system. Um, <laughs> if you can call it a system. In the US, I'm not sure you can. Yeah, um, yeah. So, Yes, that that is the general direction that I hope for. Um, I guess I, that I'm hopeful. Yeah, I agree about. with that. Yeah, and it's just dawned on me, Amazon, that I forgot when I asked you the question about have you another book planned. We didn't get round to answering it because I think you then said about the your reflections on Jessica. So, so have have we? Is there a another book in the pipeline? I would at some point like to write my memoir. Yeah. I think you know when I was younger, I never heard a story like mine and I think you know my challenges with mental health as well you know that needs to be normalized through the power of storytelling so that's you know in a number of years that's what I'm looking um, towards. So why a number of years why not now? Um, I'm, I'm not really ready <laughs> yet <laughs> to write it now. But I think that links but your point links I think a question Craig has on diversity yeah, absolutely. Do you think there's a, a lack of uh, representation in research? Well, not just research, more generally. Well, just, yeah, just in general, to yeah. be honest. You know, I think so, because when I think about when I was growing up and even now, I, I rarely hear stories that sound like mine, that look like me. And I think that becomes an issue because if you can't see yourself reflected back when you're in terms of struggles with your mental health, then you think that, am I, am I the only person that is suffering from mental health? Am I, you know, is something wrong with, with me? And I think, you know, with minority stress and the difficulties with the pandemic, the difficulties with all these anti-LGBTQ bills, I think with what the Asian community has gone through, through the global anti-Asian hate spread, you know, we're faced with, I think the last few years, we've faced new challenges where the research has to match these new challenges so we can have, treatments and policy and outcome as well for to support not just adults but kids growing up mm -hmm. in you know we have now children who have you know all they've known is to grow up in a pandemic okay. or or kids who have grown up who have you know come out with through their gender identity but in a time where there are you know hundreds of anti-trans mm -hmm. bills and what's that like for, for them yeah yeah well we we know the answer it's just devastating especially for that critical window of i know obviously childhood development continues up into your mid-20s but we know so much about what even brain development going on in particular during adolescence and puberty when all this challenges of making sense of who you are both biolog biologically cognitively emotionally i think it's such a, a vital point point, point. And, and i am really concerned even beyond the trans debate and um, or the trans um, real difficulties going on in the US and elsewhere, is that young people in general, I think, have were, their mental health was, was getting worse before the pandemic. We all knew that, all the data were there. Um, really clear data from the CDC in the United States illustrated the number of cases of suicide attempts and self-harm and depression and anxiety in young people. And, they've, and then during the latter part of the pandemic, they've got worse. And, and I think that in terms of that diversity question, I think it's so important. But but I wonder, for me, it's on well, how can we increase that representation, not just in research, but broadly, more broadly, and, and I suppose it's having more advocates. But have you any other ways, maybe Jessica, any other thoughts on what how we can increase diversity? So I, I can tell you what our lab has thought about and what we've tried to do, but it is 
inarguably the case that diversity has been and representation has been abysmal in youth mental health research historically. Um, which if you look at all the clinical trials that have been done, about 90% of participants of those studies are white. Um, it's really in no way representative of the kids who actually need help mm -hmm. in the world. Um, when you even think about who even knows to enroll their kid in a research study, who learns about research studies? There are people who have parents who are faculty members at universities or know to seek that out and trust scientists and have reason to trust scientists enough to participate. Um, and that's just not everybody. And so there are lots of reasons why the underrepresentation, but one, I think the, the tactics that we've used in uh, waiving parental permission and allowing teens to self-select into our um, mm -hmm. online studies and online treatment programs, um, we've actually just by that one step seen um, a huge increase, not just in uh, sexual and gender minority youth representation, but in racial and ethnic minority youth as representation as well. Um, about half of our samples repeatedly um, are di diverse folks who are non-white uh, from a cross-section of identities to the point where we're getting nationally re representative samples just by taking this one step. So I think there are very straightforward structural things that legally and on a large scale will be exceptionally complicated to implement um, that really can make a difference. But I do think it's getting rid of those barriers that are built in the, these mm -hmm. structural sources of discrimination and stigma um, that are really blocking major progress from being made. I think that the representation in the advocacy world and everything else will matter enormously. Um, but as long as we are testing interventions for only a subset of young people and help have, making sure they work only for a subset of young people, mm -hmm. those disparities are going to persist. Yeah, no, absolutely. But that's, but that's really impressive. Even just one relatively small intervention in a way can increase diversity. And, it's, and I suppose it's trying to do that more on a global scale. But Amazon, I'm wondering, seeing in the work that you do and speaking to um, whether Fortune 500 companies and the like, like so are you, have you, are you getting a sense so that, that the issues around diversity are, they're getting much more prominence? I don't mean just mental health in general, just are they, are they embracing diversity and, and, and its impacts on people's mental health? I've definitely seen a shift during the pandemic. And I think really the rise with the Black Lives Matter movement, mm -hmm. with the Stop Asian Hate has really made companies you know, reflect so much more in terms of diversity, but also mental health. I mean, obviously the pandemic has been huge for companies, just their, their staff's well, well-being. Um, I think, you know, people are, are far much more aware than they were a few, few years ago, but we ha we've had new issues. You know, one of them was the pandemic, but there were also, you know, minority issues that came from mm -hmm. the pandemic as, as well. Um, you know, and, and you know, I, I I find that many companies still very much struggle with um, Asian staff, mm -hmm. um, very much living in the East and the West, and also the, the cultural differences and the sensitivities of diversity and helping someone with their well-being and the difference of you know what mental health looks like in the West compared to an, an Eastern view of mental health. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. But encouraging that you've seen a shift, or you're starting to see a shift with obviously some, some way to go. Just we're almost have a couple of last questions and then, but I was just wondering, is there anything that, uh, the, unless Craig is something else, anything else we can think about, or are there any other things about how we can better support the LGBTQ community in terms of mental health that we haven't touched on. Anybody, either of you have any observations there or final thoughts that we haven't touched on? I, I think the main things I can think of are reducing these structural barriers to access, yeah. increasing representation in how we study treatments, um, and acknowledging that minority stress exists yeah, in our yeah. treatments, um, mm -hmm. and making sure yeah. that the experiences of folks are actually validated um, and, you know, that, that models that promote uh, behavior change or cognitive change aren't exclusively focused on what you can do as a person, but also acknowledge what's going on in the world. I think for me, I think because of the anti-trans bills, you know, the importance of sports 
and how important that is for someone's well-being, mm -hmm. particularly for the LGBTQ community, and also the importance of animal therapy, of mm -hmm. the wonders of animal therapy and having that kind of access in the school system and how it would help um, not just LGBTQ kids, but all, yeah. all kids in general. Yeah, absolutely. Especially I think some evidence with kids with neurodiversities um, having that access is, can be beneficial as well. And I think in the US, there's something unique about the US that we you know, don't tend to have in other countries is mass shootings in, at schools and the, you know, and the mental health link to mass shootings of if it happened to your school and then having to go back to that school. And then if it didn't happen to your school, but how kids have to go through these drills yeah. of the, and how that weighs on a six-year-old kid's mind in terms of their mental health. Well, I think us in the United Kingdom, I think, struggle to understand that or make sense of that and that um, understand, obviously, the constitutional issue. But, um, but my God, it's like, it might, like we, yeah, you train your children how you might respond if a, somebody with a gun comes into the classroom. It's just oh, hide under a desk, whatever. I mean, incredible how it doesn't activate the anxiety system. Do you know what I mean? It's just, yeah, it's hard. I mean, it's incredible. That's, that's the third time I've said incredible, but that's definitely is. It's, it's really it, something needs to change. But I, I'm not looking from this side of the water. I'm not hopeful any change is going to be forthcoming. Okay, so thanks, thanks, thanks a million for that. So if I time for just one last or one last question, then, um, and that's just to bring it to, sort of as a sort of way, not specifically about mental health. Um, so Amazon, I'll go with you first. Um, Amazon, thinking back over, well, thinking back to when you were eighteen, or not think, what advice would you give your eighteen-year-old self on what you know now? I think to be kind to myself, I think we're so, and I think this is a condition from society as well of how society views mental health that we just need to be so kind to ourselves. I always use this analogy of getting out of bed was the best thing that you do tomorrow, then that's okay. You know, if you can only do one email that day, that's okay, just to be kind yeah. to no. yourself. Great advice. And Jessica, for yourself, the same question for you. Change can happen at any time. Little things that you do right now can have enough of an impact to matter. Um, sometimes, you know, the long term and, and the changes that you are facing and the challenges ahead look so overwhelming that it seems like nothing can move. Um, but it's always happening. Changes always occurring and always possible that's fantastic and actually it's interesting both of you came up with a pretty similar i mean there's overlaps in what you both said there so i think that's that makes it clearly true and really really excellent no thank you so much on behalf of craig and i um it was a really fascinating conversation and thanks so much for the work that you're both doing and will continue to to do and so hopefully you as our our listeners find our podcast interesting please let us know what you thought thank you very much MQ Open Mind is presented by MQ Mental Health Research, the only organization that exclusively invests into scientific research around mental health. Our vision is to create a world where mental illnesses are understood, effectively treated, and one day prevented. Visit mqmentalhealth.org to learn more.